0: This is someone like me, in Slavery Tennessee's podcast, working to educate listeners about human trafficking and empower survivors of the crime by telling their stories. I'm Leslie, your host. We are so excited about this episode. It touches on so many of the things we've already been talking about this season and provides such a powerful example of how sex trafficking so often starts with youth vulnerability. This Survivor Story episode covers manipulation, grooming, societal pressures, and broken expectations. All of it. Santoya Brown is a name you may have heard in 2019 when social media was trending with the hashtag Brown. Her story was shared by celebrities like Kerry Washington and Kim Kardashian when she was up for clemency in Tennessee while serving a life sentence for killing a man who had purchased her for sex when she was 16. After a series of hearings, Governor Bill Haslam granted clemency to Syntoia in 2019, and they actually met later that year at an in Slavery Tennessee Gala. Syntoia Brown-Long has been on 2020, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, The Today Show. Her story has been featured in a Netflix special, and she even wrote an autobiography. You can learn all of the details about her case and trial with a Google search. We won't be talking in depth about all of it on this episode. Cyntoia will share a little bit about her transition out of prison, and then we'll zoom out and hear about how trafficking became a part of her story. But we'll also talk about how she didn't identify as a trafficking victim at first, and how she came to understand that she was trafficked while in prison. There are so many parts of her teenage experience that are incredibly important when we seek to understand how youth vulnerability plays a huge role in trafficking, and how to work to prevent it. And then, as always, we want to hear from survivors about hope and what's next for them. Since 2019, Santoya has done a lot. She's gotten married, has started the JFam Foundation, which has spurred the Glitter Project and the Yes Council, both of which you'll hear more about in this episode. Producer Marissa Brunell and I were blown away by Santoya's strong faith in God, despite all the difficult parts of her personal history and the ways in which her completely unique experience has so many parallels to those of the youth Marissa works with on a daily basis. So an extra special part of this episode is when Marissa asks Santoya questions from some of the youth she's working with at the moment. In Slavery Tennessee loves collaborating with survivors and we respect and support giving them a voice and platform to share when they're ready. You can actually listen to our first episode in this season about trauma-informed care and how it affects even who we interview for this podcast. In this episode, you're gonna hear Centoya Brown Long's voice, her individual experience, opinion, and perspective. We're so grateful to get to introduce you to Santoya Brown Long. Well, Marissa, let's start off
1: with some would-you-rather questions to get things rolling. So would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life?
2: Hmm. I would rather have a pause button. Why? I don't know. It seems like things just go by so fast. And Mm -hmm. like, especially now, I'm just enjoying like where I'm at, you know, in life with the work that I'm doing, my marriage, just... If I could just pause that and just, like, stay here, you know what I mean? Like, I would love that, so. That's sweet. That's a great perspective.
1: All right. Would you rather lose the ability to cry completely or cry every day
2: for 20 minutes randomly? (laughs) I would probably do away with crying just because I hate what it does to my makeup. I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm less of a crier and more of a talker. Mm. So like if I'm feeling something, I'll talk about it sometimes for hours, definitely more than 20 <laughs> minutes a day. Um, so I can do without crying.
1: Awesome. I can do without crying too. Yeah,
0: I don't – honestly, I would rather cry for 20 minutes randomly every day. Crying is just – sometimes it feels so good.
1: Especially, it feels good, but gosh, it gives me a headache, and then I get oh, all okay. snotty. And, yeah. Okay. Well, there's that. <laughs> it's a great visual. Last one. Would you rather give up social media or eat the same dinner for the rest of your
2: life? Um, I'd rather give up social media because I promise I Thank can you. really just do without it. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. The worst. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad we're all in consensus
0: there. (laughs) So Centoya, your story has been told so many times by many people and it's received national attention. All these people tweeted about it and we're not focusing so much on that part of your story for this conversation, but could you give us a brief overview of what your story is and
2: how it came to receive such national attention? So when I was 16 years old, I was set to be tried as an adult here in Nashville for shooting and killing a man that had picked me up for sex. When you're tried as an adult, you go to the court system in Davidson County just like any other adult would. You're eligible for the same sentences and everything. But I was 16 years old. I had never had a driver's license, still don't have a license, have a permit, (laughs) but not a license. Um, Never went to prom or anything like that. And so, I mean, I was just a kid and I was faced with, like losing the rest of my life as I knew it, I went to trial, and that was a horrific experience. Just having to sit there for several days while people who don't even know you are sitting there talking to these other strangers who are going to decide your fate about what a horrible the jury person they just think sitting you are. there staring at you. The whole yeah, thing. wow. And you're facing like them like head on and you're yeah. kind of looking at them like trying to like communicate like, bro, like don't, don't <laughs> sentence me like this. But uh-huh. it's such a weird experience. It's very traumatic. So about five days I was in trial and they ended up finding me guilty of felony murder, which mm-hmm. if you don't know what felony murder is here in the state of Tennessee, if there's a killing, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are. But if there's a felony that's happened and attached to it some point. That could mean that if you're riding down the street in a stolen car and you accidentally hit somebody, you could be convicted of felony murder. It's life in prison. I got gotcha. So I was convicted of felony murder. I was also convicted of premeditated first-degree murder and especially aggravated robbery and sentenced to life in prison on the spot. At 16? At 16 years old. Well, I was 18 when I was actually going through the trial, but it was from okay. stemming from sixteen because it takes a long time for you to actually get before the jury. Um, you have a lot of preliminary hearings, a lot of waiting. Mm-hmm. But yeah, stemming from what happened when I was sixteen. Okay. Yeah. So I was sentenced to life in prison and, you know, I remember going back to my cell and I'm like, man, this nah. I'm not just taking this laying down. Mm. And, you know, I just cut the lights off and I just started talking to God. And I was like, please just let me out of here, whatever it takes. Just I don't want to spend the rest of my life in prison. And I'll get out and I will tell the world about you. Like, I'll just commit myself to that if you would just let me out of here. Mm-hmm. And that was back in 2006. Okay. And I would file several appeals after that. And each time I would be told no. Mm-hmm. Um, so my faith just pretty much started to die. I remember there was a time when I would just go around telling everyone, you know, God's not real. That's just something we make up in our mind to help us cope with things. But yeah, He's not real. It's not real. I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. And really, I was angry because I felt like He didn't listen to my prayer, that I was, you know, sitting here serving a life sentence, and it seemed like I was going to actually serve that sentence. Um, So I really struggled with that. And then I get this letter in the mail about two months after my final appeal was denied, and I pretty much had no chance to get out other than clemency, was, which was a slim chance. And clemency means? Clemency is, you know, every governor, even the president when it comes to federal inmates, but every governor of every state has the executive clemency power where he could commute your sentence to a lesser time. He could commute your death sentence to a life sentence or whatever. He can pardon you for something. Let's say even if you're free, but you have a criminal record, he can pardon you and wipe that away from your record. Okay. And, you know, it's very rare. It's rarely used. Traditionally, it's something that's done at the end of a governor's term. Mm. But in Tennessee, like, there was a study that was done, and it was like less than 1% of people who actually apply for clemency are granted. And in all the years, the 15 years that I was in prison, I knew of only one person who had been granted clemency, Mm. and that was Gail Owens. And her sentence was commuted from death to life. So... For wow. me to think that I could get clemency and have my fifty-one year sentence commuted to fifteen years was absolutely ridiculous. Did you apply? For I clemency? did. You did. I did. Okay. So I got this letter in the mail, and you know, this is at a time when you know I wasn't really getting that much mail. Like every every now and then, I would get mail here and there, and. For some reason, you know, I just paid attention to this. I wasn't really one to write back a lot. I didn't, at that point in my incarceration, I didn't have like a lot of pen pals. I didn't have any pen pals, as a matter of fact. Hmm. But the letters' edges were burnt on it, and I was like, "Well, that's interesting. I've never seen a letter like that." So I started reading it, and there's these two pictures in it, and this man, and he is fine, honey. Um, <laughs> and so that that of course caught my eye too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but his name was Jamie and he was from Texas and in the letter he wasn't like trying to hit on me or anything like that basically all he was saying was you know god had led him to write me and tell me mm-hmm. that i was getting out of prison that mm-hmm. he was going to god was going to put me on the hearts of people all across the world and people were going to come together and start praying for me and i was going to get released and not to worry about anything that god is bigger than any sentence mm-hmm. any judge any jury on this planet So I wrote him back, and, you know, whenever he wrote me again, he just started telling me more about himself and about his faith and, you know, his own experience with some of the things that had happened in his life. And I was like, wow, well, there's some parallels there I see. Hmm. And for the first time, I was able to have just that open conversation about how I kind of felt like, man, I asked God to let me out, and he's not. He's not doing it. I don't believe in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, like before, I would just shut it down. There were several people that tried to come to me and talk to me about God, try to talk to me about Jesus, but I just shut it down. It's like, I'm not trying to hear that. I don't believe in that. That's not real. Like, I like facts. I like logic. Like that's that's who I am. And so then I'm sitting here writing Jamie and he's telling me these things where it's like he's experienced the Lord speaking to him in ways that can't be explained by logic. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, Now, wait a minute, because I've had experiences like that, too, but I've never told anybody because I did not want people to think I was crazy. (laughs) But I've had times where I couldn't explain things that had happened, where I'd had dreams, and I would tell people about these dreams that I had, and then we would both watch as they came true. And it's like, okay, I think I'm at a point where I can no longer deny that, okay, there's definitely some higher power out there. But, Mm. you know, I still have that anger where it's like, I'm not ready to accept that this is what it is. I had the best legal team, several lawyers working on my case. Highly the whole experienced. Time. Yeah, for much of the time. Mr. Bone and his team, they came along, I think, about 2010. Okay. Highly experienced attorneys, highly connected attorneys. I've had an attorney who was on the Tennessee Supreme Court. He was the chief justice at one point. I had an attorney who used to be on the Court of Criminal Appeals as a justice. Wow. So they were highly Very capable. But mm-hmm. it was like... Nothing was was happening. Like wow. it was getting nowhere.
3: Hmm.
2: But and then there was a sort of public outcry. Yeah, with the hashtag. Yeah. And, and at then, what point was clemency granted to you? Then clemency was granted about a year and two months okay. after all that started. And to be honest with you, like that public outcry made me a little nervous. Oh really? Yeah. Why is that? I mean, it wasn't, like, really helping Mm -hmm. as far as, like, putting the pressure on the governor and that. Because, you know, in Tennessee, like, there's a lot of things that a lot of the conservative people are not necessarily here for. And Mm -hmm. overturning a life sentence is probably going to fit in that category. So, like, we didn't really want all that attention on it. We kind of just wanted it to be, like, a little— Under the radar And it's like Man there's no hiding it now Yeah Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So yeah It definitely made All of us nervous And I remember There was at one point uh, The legal advisor To the governor's office He had said All this celebrity stuff Is not really helping Wow And I was like Oh It's not my fault Like Could you just tell them Like (laughs) governor has them I'm sorry But it's not my fault
0: (laughs) Where were you When you first found out That Clemency was being granted to you Do you remember
2: Yes. They came and told me on a Monday. And it was the Thursday before that. I still remember this. I was standing like in my door of my room and I was looking out and there was a girl like on the other walkway. And she just looked, she said, today's going to be a good day. I was like, yeah, okay. All right. And she says, no, it's going to be a good day. Watch what I tell you. I was like, okay. And it didn't really feel like she was the one talking to me. So I was like, wait a minute, is the Holy Spirit trying to tell me something? Hmm. And fast forward to past that weekend, she's sitting down there when the officer calls my name and says, Brown, go to VG. And she's sitting on the phone. She was like, go get your blessing, girl. And I was like, wait a minute. I feel like I know what this is. They're about to tell me that I'm getting out of prison. They're about to tell me that I'm getting out of prison. What's VG? VG is the visitation gallery. Okay. So that's where you go to meet your attorneys, meet your family, or anybody like that. So I remember I walked out, and I was on the sidewalk, and I just started thanking God because I was like, you know what, I'm just going to start praising you because I know what this is. And so I'm just talking. I know people around me probably think I'm crazy, but, you know, I'm just thanking him for what he's done because I know it's him that has done it. Like, Mm -hmm. it's just him, and I've, I've been able to see his hand in the whole situation, and as I'm walking, the sun is shining, but it started to rain, and I just had to laugh and then cry at the same time. This is one of those times that I actually did let myself cry because I thought back to another dream that he had given me when I was getting out of prison and it was dark and it was raining, oh, wow. and here I am, and it just starts to rain. So I walk into the visitation gallery, and I'm sitting there, and here comes my attorneys, and he says, you're getting out in August. <laughs> and this is January. So I had to wait and go through the transitional program there at the prison. You talked about the public outcry not being a
0: super great thing. Why do you think people resonated so strongly with it? Why did it
2: take off? Well, number one, it's at a time when we're talking about sex trafficking more. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Back when I was arrested, we weren't talking about that like that. That was reserved for girls from foreign countries who were stuffed in the back of vans and brought over here. But it didn't apply to girls like me. So we started talking more about, like, what it really was. We started talking more about how it actually happens here in your backyard. And then Stacey Case from Fox News had done that interview with me talking Mm -hmm. about the Glitter Project and what I had wanted to do if I was ever given the opportunity to be outside of prison. And that clip just... Like, it just took off. Mm. And, you know, I think one of the things is, like, people was able to see me, the 16-year-old me, and see like I was a child. I know that image was going everywhere with me with the pigtails. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wait a minute, this is a kid. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. And no kid should have to go through that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a lot different... In 2017, whenever that was going around, then 2004.
0: Yeah. So all of these things, the charges, trial, clemency, they don't make up the whole part of your story. Mm -hmm. So let's transition to before all of this. You were a teenager when you were put into that situation. What did life look like for you before that? Your early teens, what did day-to-day life look like
2: for you? So I should have had a normal life. I grew up in a middle-class family. Both my mother and my father, they worked. My mother was a teacher. She taught special needs kids. Mm -hmm. My father was retired military. My mom took me to church every Sunday morning, every Wednesday night. You know, I was smart, I made good grades, but I started struggling in school. It began when I started to feel different because I was mixed and because I was adopted and kids can be mean. And they were quick to point out, you know, that that was not normal or like everyone else. Mm. And I really felt that. So I went through school feeling by myself and I actually wanted to be by myself. I didn't want to participate with others in class. I didn't even want the teacher helping me with my work. Like I was smart enough I could figure it out by myself. Just let me know what I need to do and that's it. Mm. They consider that having a bad attitude. Mm -hmm. So I felt like I pretty much had a target on my back. Any little thing that I would do, the teacher would find a reason to send me to the office. Kind of just wanted to get rid of me. And that's, you know, that's how I felt. Like everyone was trying to get rid of me, that no one really wanted me. Mm-hmm. And so I really struggled with that. I ended up getting in trouble for bringing a bottle of no pills to school when I was 12 years old. And if you don't know what a no-dose is, no-dose is a caffeine pill. Okay. You can go to Walmart and get it. It's like nothing. And, you know, I had found it in my sister's husband's truck, and I was like, oh, okay, look what I got. And, you know, just something stupid, one of those stupid things that kids do. And when I went there and, you know, I was showing it off, well, the teachers and the SRO officer acted like, oh, no, you have drugs in school. Hmm. Like, this is not good. And they said, that it fit under the zero tolerance policy, and they were expelling me from school. And I'm like, oh wait, what? <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I get it, of course. You guys didn't want me here in the first place. Like, you were looking for any fit reason. Fit into so. your, what you were already telling yourself yeah. about. So I was like, okay, fine, whatever. So my mom, she worked at a different school where she was a teacher, and the alternative school was all the way across – the town from where we lived. And she couldn't take me all the way to school every morning and then get back and go to work. So she had to take me down to the city bus depot and have them teach me how to read the bus routes and Mm. learn to buy transfers and make sure I get off on the right stop, how to get off on the bus. And
3: Mm.
2: I was 12 years old, and my mom had to send me out into the city to go figure out how to get to alternative school every single day. Mm. And when I went to alternative school... These kids, they weren't in trouble necessarily for bringing something like Tylenol to show off. Like Hmm. These kids had been in facilities already. Many of them had had histories like selling drugs, using drugs, um, violent charges, things like that. Some of them were even on probation from being in a facility, being locked up. And they had been released, and now they had to go to alternative school.
3: Hmm.
2: And I was the youngest one, but it's like I didn't feel out of place there. Hmm. They didn't treat me how the other kids treated me. They didn't judge me. They didn't feel like I was weird and like I didn't fit in. I felt like, oh well, like you know, I fit here. Like this is where I belong. Huh. Like
0: huh. okay, they were almost more welcoming, yeah, of you than
2: most definitely. Yeah. And needless to say, I started doing things that were way more serious than bringing no-dos to show off in school. Hmm. Started skipping school, getting into all kinds of stuff you know, with the kids that I skipped school with. And I ended up catching a charge one day while I was skipping school with three of the older kids that I had met there. So I went to juvenile court, and this was less than six months from the time that I entered this school. So I went to court. I was sent to a facility for an evaluation, they said. And once I got out, I was on probation. And I think like four or five months after I was out, I had my probation violated. I had my probation violated by the teacher over the special needs class, which is where they stuck me because that was the only place where they could just hide me and put me where I was out of sight, out of mind. So they stuck me in the back of the class and had a little partition installed so I could be away from everyone else. Yeah, Hmm. it was something. So I got charged with an assault charge for snatching my purse out of the teacher's hands when she was going through it. Back in juvenile court, but this time I ended up in state custody. Does that mean like they took
0: you away from your... Parents? Yeah. What is that? Wow.
2: So they arrested me. I went to juvenile, and they had brought me to court from juvenile detention, which was in Columbia, Mm -hmm. Columbia, Tennessee at the time. They brought me all the way up here, and they didn't tell me I had a court date. So naturally, my parents didn't know I had a court date. They kind of just brought me up there, and the judge was like, okay, well, you can go home. We'll reinstate your probation. And, you know, I called, but my mom was at work. (laughs) she can't just leave class and like you know I have to go because my daughter is getting out of juvie today so I gotta go get her Mm. like she couldn't just leave so she calls my dad and my dad has already left because he's a truck driver so he's on the road like hours away and he called one of his friends to come get me this guy named Big Johnny and I was not going anywhere with with Big John. With Big (laughs) Johnny. No. Um, He was very creepy. Mm. He had said some really inappropriate things to me when I was younger, actually a few months before that. And I told the court staff that. I said, I don't feel comfortable going with him.
3: Mm.
2: You know, if I could wait for my mom to get off or something, but I don't feel comfortable going with him. And so the clerk actually told the judge and he said, you know what, put her in state custody. Just like that. Just like that. Oh Oh, yeah. Just like that. So I was put in state custody, and that's where I was sent to be in a group home. And when I was in that group home, man, it was it was rough. It well, how was do you rough. Say that it was every single day. There was something like when I tell you, I probably had a fight every single day that I was in there.
3: Really.
2: It was just rough. And like, you know, all of us girls were just at each other.
3: Hmm.
2: We weren't really getting any kind of help for whatever it is that we was there for. Like, there was no real counseling, no therapy, no programming or anything like that. We either sat in the room or sat in the day room playing games, fighting over games, hmm. things like that. Man, it was horrible. Pretty much just being warehoused somewhere because no one else wanted to deal with us. Yeah. Probably all frustrated. Oh. All feeling beyond frustrated. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I remember a few of the girls had actually ran away from the facility, and we all thought it was the coolest thing ever. Like, we were kind of scared, too, but it was like, that's kind of cool. And then they got caught, and they had all these great stories about how wonderful it was and how they loved it. And it's like, man, I want to run too now. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be here. Who wants to be here? I want to run as well. Hmm. And shortly after that, you know, I hooked up with a guy from the alternative school that we had to go to while we were in that facility. Mm. And he was like, you should run away and be with me for the weekend. I was like, I should, shouldn't I? (laughs) So so that's what I did. And that's how I ended up being on the streets in Nashville. I would get caught and I would just run again. And they would hold me in a facility. I ended up going to Woodland Hills, which is a more secure facility and um, I couldn't run from there, but that was fine because I just waited till I got out. And, mm. you know, I didn't want to be at home with my mom. You know, she's great and everything, but it's like I couldn't live the life that I was living on the streets there at my mom's home. Like she was not having that, mm. <laughs> you know? And it's mm. like, I don't want this structure. I don't want these rules. I want to go back to what I was doing living on the streets. I want to yeah. live like that.
0: You literally lived on the streets. Where did you stay? I
2: mean, I wasn't sleeping under the bridge or anything like that. Yeah, not like living on the streets. But the girl that I had run with, like she had a group of friends that she had met while she was on the run. And they would let her stay. And so they let me stay too. Okay. So, yeah, I stayed there with them. I stayed in Panorama. I stayed all over the place. But, like, I was always staying with someone.
0: Yeah.
1: Since I work with our minor clients, I hear a lot from them about their addiction to, like, the adrenaline life and being on the streets, not technically sleeping on the streets, like you said, but running around on the streets. And I'm wondering, as somebody that's come out of it on the other side, what would you say that you were getting out of that experience, like that was missing in your life that you needed to be on the streets and get that rush?
2: I mean, honestly, I guess... I didn't have to, like, really stop and process the things that were bothering me. Like, number one, there was always Mm. something new happening. There was always some new drama popping off. And number two, I had access to whatever drugs I wanted to kind of numb it. I had access to the men that I was just drowning in where I didn't have to think about that. I could just get whatever attention and affection I feel is going to make me feel better right here in the moment. Mm. And then I didn't have someone telling me, what I needed to do. Like, I didn't have to be in the house at a certain time. Like, I didn't have to do anything I didn't want to do. Like, I could do whatever I wanted to do, and there was something that was great in that. I'm sure all of us, like, you know, at some point, it's like, man, I'm just so sick of this. Like, mm-hmm. like I have to be at work at this time? Like, I don't feel like being at <laughs> work at nine. I want to go at 12. Mm-hmm. And it's like, when you're out there on the streets, like, you get to set your own rules. You get to do what you want to do. And there's something, like, exhilarating about that when you're a kid who you've been brought up your whole life, clean your room, like go do this, go do that. You have to go to school. I don't want to go, so you're going to school. And so it's like, man, like you broke free of all that. It's like, I'm in Disneyland right now.
3: Hmm.
0: Yeah. So at what point does trafficking become a part of your story?
2: So a lot of people, like whenever they first heard about my story, they always talk about when I was with Cut. Um, When I was 16 years old, the man who I now know as my trafficker. At that time, I called him my older boyfriend. Mm -hmm. But what few people fail to realize is that, like, trafficking was taking place way before then. So the women that I was staying with on the run, they had introduced me to the whole concept of, you can survive by being with these men.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Like, don't ever make them feel like, yeah, you're just going to have sex and be broke afterwards. No, 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 no. Like, that's not what that is. If you have sex, you need to be able to pay a bill. Like, you're sitting on a gold mine. You can either mm. sit on it, you can give it away for free, or you can get paid for it. Mm. Which one do you choose? Like, to them, it was stupid for you to just go out there and just give yourself away for free. Who does that? That's not what that's made for. Mm. And I was like, okay, that's that's a fair point. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm a kid. Of course I'm going to listen to these adults that are telling sure. me this. Mm. And so it's not like I wasn't walking on Dickerson Road. I've never been on Dickerson Road. wasn't in any dark street corners or Escort services, nothing like that. But no, like, these older men that I was meeting at clubs, when I would go out with them, it was like, you know, if I ask you to give me this money to get my nails done, my hair done, whatever, like, I expect that. Like, if I'm sleeping with you, that's expected. And there was always that unspoken understanding. Hmm. So many people don't consider that to be trafficking, but it actually, it is. Like, you're out there having sex in order to survive. Survival sex is still trafficking if you're a kid. Well, that's exactly legally yeah. under the age of 18. Mm-hmm. It's trafficking no matter what. Absolutely. Even if you don't have somebody who's standing in the shadows waiting to collect, you know, whatever you've earned from the night, that does not matter. Mm -hmm. You still have a grown man who's paying a child to be with him sexually, and that is trafficking. Mm -hmm. So that started with me when I was 13 years old. These men that I was with, they were in their mid to late 20s, some in their 30s. I've even been with men that were in their 40s, like, which now it's like disgusting, but it's like you know, when you're a kid. Well, and if that's the paradigm of understanding, yeah. if the
0: culture that's around you is saying, this is a trade.
2: This is just something I have to do. Yeah. That, that's life. Mm-hmm. They taught me like, that's how relationships work. There was just this whole system that they had, like this philosophy, uh, the school of thought of how you can assess whether you need to pay this man any attention. You know, you look at his shoes. Okay. You look at his car, but when you're looking at his car, it you know, just depends. Like, is it a newer model, just a regular car? Because that could still mean he has money and he huh. has so much money he doesn't want to show it. Or is he showy with the rims? Because that could be somebody else's. Or he could have just been spending everything. Wow, All these that le- nuanced conversation oh, yes. is happening. That nuance. How big is his pack? Does he have a pack? Is it is it powder that he has? Or is it actually crack? Is he selling crack? If he's selling crack, how big is his pack? That could tell you kind of what level he's on and whether you should even waste your time with it. Or does he have shoe boxes in the car? And so it was like all these little things that they were teaching me, that's how it was starting.
3: Okay.
2: And that went on from the time that I was 13. Of course, I did time in the facility. And then I got out. But for me, that was just life. That was just a way of life. I didn't think of it as trafficking. You know, if anybody talked about sex trafficking, there was no way that I would ever thought that applied to me. And even when I was 16, when I actually met Cut. You called him your boyfriend. Yeah. 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 I thought this was my boyfriend. When I tell you within three days, like, we were staying in a hotel together. You know, I felt like this is the one. He's listening to me. He wants to know all this stuff about me. He's asking me all these questions, and I could just go on and on, and I've never had that. Before, I was taught, this is what you tell them. You make assessments on what you feel like they want to know, and you just present yourself as that, and that's what you do. But, no, he's asking questions about the real me. He wants to know the real me and Mm -hmm. and how I really— He really cares. Yeah, he really cares. Like, Mm. this is love. This is real. Yeah. And nah, like, (laughs) he was just trying to get in my head. Mm. You don't see that, though. And so, like, I just let myself get completely comfortable. Like, my guard was completely down. And within three days, we were staying together in a hotel because he was like, man, I just love being around you. Like, I don't want to be away from you. Mm. Like, when I had to drop you off at the house, like, I don't really want to because I miss you. And I was like, oh, we can be together all the time. <laughs> yes, we can do this. Yeah. And, you know, all these lies, these dreams that he was telling me, like, man, we should just run away together. I would be able to vent to him about some of the things that the girls that were doing, you know, at the house that kind of got on my nerves. And, you know, he would tell me, man, she's just jealous. Like, you know, he mm. would tell me all this stuff. And he was like, yeah, you're right. You're right. I don't need to go back there. Forget them." Huh. And it's like really- Getting you more dependent on him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was like trying to distance me from everyone else. And so then it's like, man, we're just going to run away together. We're just going to go to Vegas. We can go to Vegas. We'll get us a nice truck, get out there, live a good life. I'm like, yeah, we will, won't we? That's what we'll do. Mm. You know, not knowing, no, honey, he's trying to take you out of Vegas so he can exploit you to the max. Mm. Like this little stuff that he has you doing out of this hotel room, like that's nothing. But he was already having you do stuff. Oh yeah. Because you have to think like at that point, I was already accustomed to going out, being with dudes and getting money from them. I would call them, tricks or sugar daddies. Mm. Like, you know, I got this, this sugar daddy. I mean, it's just life, right? That's how I thought at the time. Like, that's mm. normal. That's what people do. And of course, I would do that for us, for me and Cut. If we're, we're down right now, it's okay. I'll get him this and he could go and he could turn and he could flip it and then he'll provide for us. Because essentially what you've been taught up
0: to this point is this is... Perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable.
2: Mm-hmm. It's a perfectly acceptable way to put food in my mouth, clothes in my back, roof over my head. It's perfectly acceptable. It's like that is your
0: job, just like he might have a job doing what he's doing. Mm -hmm. It's like we come together and we make our life work.
2: Yeah. It's as old as time. Women have been doing this forever. Like, Mm -hmm. what's the problem? And, you know, that's what I've been told. And so, you know, when we're there, it's like, yeah, this is what we're doing. This is what I'm bringing to the table. This is me contributing to the relationship. He didn't beat me into doing it. That Mm -hmm. didn't happen until later when I said, well, I don't feel like going out right now. I don't feel like it. That's when it got violent. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, it it doesn't start out like that. Mm -hmm. Like, who's really going to go into a situation thinking, okay, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell myself and let this man take all my money because I think that's a great deal. Mm -hmm. Like, no, that ain't how it happens. It's more nuanced. Yeah. There's more of a manipulation technique, it sounds like. Creeps up on you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, before you really understand... What's really going on? Mm-hmm. Because I can tell you, if you would have asked me, like, if, if that's what was happening with me, I would have been like, you're crazy. Who does that? I don't do that, honey. That's what they're doing all on Dickerson Road. That's not what this is. Mm. But no, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it was.
0: <laughs> How long was it that you were in the relationship with him that it started to get violent when
2: you pushed back on anything? Within a few days. Like, oh, that yeah. yeah. Uh, Cut and I only knew each other for a few weeks. That's it. Total. Total. From the time that I met him to the time that I was arrested, that's it. That's how quick it can happen. That's how fast it happens. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when people are thinking, whoa, wait. Yeah, that's how it happens because you have to think. Those seeds were already planted. Mm -hmm. They were already planted. I was primed and ready. Yeah. Like my vulnerability level was like sky high. And so
0: that's the relationship that put you in this situation, Mm -hmm. which ultimately puts you on trial ends in your clemency yep. in 2019. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is in slavery's what is 13 publicity campaign. Mm-hmm. And I think you've already mentioned so far in our conversation that you and others in this similar lifestyle do not identify with the trafficking right. um, conversation. So what was the
2: what is 13 campaign? When did you see it and how did that affect you? So I saw the What is Thirteen campaign when I was sitting on my bed in prison, mm-hmm. sitting in my prison cell. I was watching this this commercial and you know, here you had the governor, which the governor was already on my mind because I'm thinking, Man, if this last appeal gets denied, because this was right before my last appeal got denied, mm-hmm. like I'm gonna have to ask for clemency from the governor. And so here I see him. And he's on the TV screen along with so many other people. You had Megan Barry yeah. was involved, like so many people from the TBI. And it's like, wait, what? What did they just say? Did they just say there's no such thing as a teen prostitute? And I was like, wait a minute. Whoa, what's going on here? Because that's exactly what they that's why me. you were sitting on yeah. the bed. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> what, that's what the DA said. That's what he called me. You know, that's what huh. the court was calling me. That's what the news was calling me way back when. So what's really going on? And I remember going to work. I had worked at track at the time for a call center there at the prison. And I had asked one of the, the women that worked there to look it up for me, like the What Is 13 campaign. And she printed off some stuff for me off about the campaign. And I just started reading more about it. And I was like, wait a minute. I'm so confused right now. I have to understand. What do they mean? Why are they saying this? How come it's not? And so I started digging more into sex trafficking. I started studying more about it. And I was like, why weren't we talking about this way back then? And why Mm. didn't nobody tell me this? Mm. Like, why was I going through my whole life, like, blaming myself and, like, feeling shameful for what happened when really, no, I was taken advantage of. Mm. I was a kid. And I had been told that by, you know, my attorney at the time and other people, but, like, it really didn't sink in. I guess it, you know, I feel like, no, you just say that because you love me. But to see, like, community leaders actually saying it, it's like, Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and so, like, that was really impactful for me to see that. That was really powerful. So, and there was legislation that was actually passed after you were
0: convicted. Because at the time, there wasn't the law about anyone under
3: 18
2: is a trafficking victim no matter what. Right. So even though I was 16 and the cops, they kept calling me. They kept calling me a prostitute. Mm. And. Mm-hmm. They knew that this man was an adult that they arrested me with in the hotel. Like, there was just never any question. Mm-hmm. Like, even as recent as my clemency hearing, which was 2018, the lead detective in my case came and he testified. He was like, well, I don't know where all this trafficking stuff is coming from. She was doing what she wanted to do. Anything she was doing is, is what she wanted to do. And it's like—
0: Well, that's a gross misunderstanding of the issue.
2: Thank you. Among law enforcement. Good job, mm-hmm. sir. Good job. Mm-hmm.
0: So last week, we actually talked to Stacia Freeman, who you know, with Epic Girl. You guys do a lot of work together, and we are going to talk about that. But one of the things we touched on were the list of risk factors within minors and juveniles that can contribute to exploitation or that can be signs of potential exploitation in the future. You've talked a little bit about your vulnerability and how the risk factors really just make you more vulnerable to exploitation. Why is it important that people understand how big a role vulnerability plays in this issue?
2: I mean, number one, kids just in general are vulnerable just because they're kids, like because of all the emotions that they're having, that they're going through, like the social situations that they're trying to navigate. They don't have much experience with life, so they're vulnerable anyway. Mm -hmm. And when you add all these other factors into the play, like if they're trying to to navigate trauma that's happened to them. And they're, they're looking for like something to help them cope, something to help them deal with something, or they're trying to escape a situation, whether it's an abusive situation at home, whether it's, you know, a situation where they don't want to be in a facility. What kid wants to be in a facility? Yeah. Anything like that. It's like, man, you need you really need to pay attention here because kids are desperate and they're in these situations. This is when when all these choices are being made and Mm -hmm. they need to have people who can really direct them and let them know what tools they have, the resources that are available. So vulnerability is really important because, like, that's a key point in time when people need to see that this is a time when you can intervene because, man, like, it can go left real quick. Yeah, right. One
0: of the things you've talked about already is how we have this idea of trafficking, being kidnapped in a van, Pizzagate, Wayfair, all of these things. Why is continuing to talk about that harmful, especially from a survivor perspective?
2: Well, for me, it's like it says, well, what you went through, like, that's not serious, honey. That's that's nothing. Your experience doesn't count. But it's like, no, no, no. That's what that is. Mm-hmm. Like, that does count. And that mm-hmm. does matter. And that's what's happening. If you look at the majority of people who are going through it right now, That's what their experiences is. If you ask some of the adult women who've gone through it, if you ask them, well, how did this start for you? That's what they're going to tell you. They're not going to tell you that they were shuttled over here from from India or from Mexico and, and made to work out of this, you know, mm-hmm. pizza parlor. Like, yeah. they're not going to tell you that. The majority of people, like, it's happening in your backyards. It could be your neighbor. You just never know. And that's what we need to be talking about because that's what's happening every single day. That's what mm-hmm. domestic minor sex trafficking looks like. And that's the most prevalent form of it where it's happening right here in our backyard. And we can actually do something about it.
3: Mm-hmm. But
2: don't discount that experience. Don't discount that mm-hmm. and say, well, not unless somebody is thrown into a van, am I worried about it? Because, you know, then I'm worried about my own child. Like, mm-hmm. no, it can happen to your own child anyway.
3: Mm-hmm. But we
2: need to worry about everyone. We need to worry about all kids and how we can prevent it from happening to all kids, because if it can happen in one, it can happen to all of them. Mm-hmm. And this is why so many
1: of the victims that we work with here at Enslavery and any organization, they don't identify themselves mm-hmm. as victims. They're like, that didn't happen to me. I'm not from a foreign country. I wasn't driven all over and kidnapped in a van. I don't think I've ever met a victim that identifies themselves as a victim at the beginning. It takes a
2: long time. And for me, I felt like I knew what I was doing. I yeah. wanted to do that. Yeah. It's like, no, baby, like that. you don't understand.
0: Well, because all of the conversation around it came from a place of empowerment, but ultimately comes from a place of being vulnerable, Mm -hmm. and being victimized to the idea of sex being a commodity. Yeah. And so there's this sort of twisting of words that's happening.
2: Yeah, that's why I'm not big. Like when people say, like, that's women's right. It's about, like, empowering women to do that Mm -hmm. with our bodies. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what this is because this is reducing Mm -hmm. women's bodies to commerce, to goods to be bartered and sold. Like, Mm -hmm. that's not what that is. Like, I can remember feeling— Wow, look at the effect that I have on these men. Like, huh. I'm in control of this situation. For once, I'm in control of this. Like, that's what wow. was, was going in my head. But no, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Like, no, I wasn't. Mm-hmm. What was I really in control of? I was out there trying to survive, like struggling, because I couldn't control anything else in my life. And I found that, and it made me feel that I was in control, but I really wasn't. I was being exploited. Mm. So you brought up the word prevention, which is so important, and that's a lot of what you're
0: doing now. And I'm so excited to talk about that. What does prevention
2: look like? For me, it looks like, well, let's start listening to like these kids who say, I was on the streets because of this. I was on the streets because of that. Many of the girls that I've talked to is like, man, I left the foster home because I felt like They didn't get me. I felt like my case manager wasn't really helping me here in this foster home. Or I left the facility because who wants to be locked up? Mm. Like, nobody wants to be locked up. Or I left home because my father did this to me. Like, all these different reasons. And it's like, why didn't DCS help you in another way? Like, why weren't the facilities helping you to get the care? Let's back up a bit because it seems like they're kind of at the root of this. Mm. Or in the schools, like with the school system. Like, why was this happening? Like, Let's hold them accountable. Hmm. Like, we always want to talk about the trafficker. Let's back it up a bit because before they even come into the picture, there are other factors that are at play here. And if we can address that, then maybe we can stop it from happening so much. Maybe we can really get at the heart of what's pushing kids to be out in the streets. Tell us about JFAM and when you founded it and what you're doing there. So the JFAM Foundation is the foundation for justice, freedom, and mercy. I thought back to the What is 13 campaign and, like, mm. how impactful that was for me. And it's like, think about the impact that this can have on young girls who will see this, who will hear this. And think about the impact that it will have on if we actually give those girls who are coming out of that – that opportunity to just be empowered that no man you can change this for other people mm-hmm. like I know that made me feel empowered that's always driven me is that I wanted another young girl to never have to go through what I went through mm-hmm. what if we give them an opportunity to have an audience with the same systems that failed them mm-hmm. and advise them on what they should be doing differently that's what I want to do huh. and not just with trafficking victims but also with the incarcerated population but our first initiative is the glitter project yeah that's something that you know I thought of when I I was first doing all of that research
3: Mm -hmm. on the
2: grassroots learning initiative on teen trafficking, exploitation, and rape. That research was like, why did I grow up thinking this was okay? Mm -hmm. Why did my community let me feel like this was okay, that this was acceptable? You know, there's so many other people that need to know that it's not acceptable. As a matter of fact, there's people that need to know what really goes on. Like, stop talking about these white vans. Like, that's not what we need to be talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's like, You know, well, maybe instead of listening to the people who are part of the agencies, actually listen to the girls who've gone through it. Actually listen to the people who come from it and let them lead the conversation. So Mm. that's really what we're about. We're about really working with marginalized populations and bringing them center stage Mm. and helping them get to a point where they can actually be the one that serve as advisors. And what's great about that is you're also
0: having peer conversations then, because it sounds like one of the things that really fed into your understanding of the world were the own conversations you were having with girls in the facility, older women that were leading you down a not great path. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like what you're doing is you're providing peer voices for these young girls to hear that there is a better path.
2: Absolutely. And it's empowering. Yep. So that's what we're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. We have started working with Epic Girl to do that because, you know, this is something that Stacia is great at. (laughs) Um, And so we're actually working with Epic Girl on doing that. We launched on January 29th, and along with what we're trying to do with building a curriculum with the girls actually working to build a curriculum for other youth, um, we're also advocating for January 29th to be Child Sex Trafficking Awareness Day. And then also for the silver glitter ribbon mm-hmm. for child sex trafficking awareness. Mm-hmm. And that's because we talk about human trafficking, but human trafficking is an umbrella term. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you have organ trading, you have adult sex trafficking, yeah. you know, and it's, it's labor different. Trafficking yeah, labor trafficking is a whole It's different thing. when it's about kids. Like the factors, it's so complex when we're talking about kids. We need to have some more attention on that. And we really need to work on that because if we can attack it there— we can have an effect on the adults who are going through it. If you look and talk to some of the women who've experienced trafficking, they'll tell you that it started when they was a kid.
3: Yeah, Yeah.
2: Like this is where we need to be focusing attention. So, you know, we're really hoping that other organizations will start using the silver glitter awareness ribbon, Mm -hmm. you know, specifically for child sex trafficking um, and however they do it. If they have their own products that they make, you know, maybe put the glitter ribbon on there, but just really trying to create an awareness movement and create a platform and then ask that those girls be given the opportunity to use that platform to speak Mm -hmm. their truth.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: One of the things that I love that you said that you're going to provide are these people who have been through it, these girls who have been through it, going into places like facilities and kind of consulting on Mm -hmm. this is where pitfalls were. And I think a lot of people would not expect or believe that these programs are failing youth, right? So they might think that there are plenty of programs to help kids get off the streets and legal infrastructure. What would you say to these people who think
2: that everything's fine? Don't they have what they need? I would ask them how many conversations they've actually had with kids who are in these systems and kids who are going through these programs, because I can almost guarantee you that it's been none. Mm -hmm. Because if you listen to them, they will tell you, but they're not given that opportunity to speak up. Mm -hmm. Like, He didn't set me free so that I could just, you know, hey, just enjoy it, like, chill, hang out, sin. Like, no, He set me free, like, for a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's purpose attached to this in making sure that their voice matters too. Like, if Jesus was here, like, Mm -hmm. their voice... That's Mm -hmm. who he would be listening to. Mm -hmm. That's who he would be talking to and taking up the cross for them. So, yeah, it's just—for me, it's just Mm -hmm. an honor, and it's Mm -hmm. just, like, I feel a strong sense of purpose. How can we, like, when I'm working with
1: kids— They want to talk to somebody who's been through it, right, Mm -hmm. or can identify in some way. And we've done things where we try to pair them up with an older mentor, and that actually has been very impactful. But I think the Glitter Project is a great opportunity to get
2: our youth involved. How can we do that? Sitting right here. <laughs> like, yeah. like we we would love, you know, to have a conversation about that. Right now we're we're selling the pens. We're trying to, to raise funds to actually get money to pay the youth. One of the things that's always like really bothered me is when I would see organizations who kind of re exploit youth in a way, like yeah. get them to tell their story. That's not what I want. I don't want them, like, telling their story to, like, get pity or anything. Like, no, no, no. I want them to speak from a place of empowerment, which I know you ladies know. Like, these kids are not to be pitied. Hmm. Like, these kids have gone through the fire and they survived. Like, Mm -hmm. they are here. Like man, you would be impressed. And so they have so much to offer. They have so much insight. They have so much experience and they should be compensated like they do. They should be compensated like anyone else. Mm -hmm. Um, So right now, you know, that's what we're doing. We're trying to raise funds so that we can pay for them as consultants, um, which is exactly what they are. Market-based values for their payments and We want to get that set up, and hopefully we can get that going soon. Like if Mm -hmm. it was up to me, I wish we could do it like right now. Mm -hmm. Um, But this month, really been cranking it up, trying to get those funds coming in so we could start forming that that Yes Council, extending it, those official contracts with them.
0: So if you're listening and you want another way to get involved with this issue, Mm -hmm. Glitter Project.
2: Yes, www.jfamfoundation.org.
0: Okay. So last question I have before we transition into actual questions from youth, if there is a girl listening who is 12, 13, 14, 15, mm-hmm.
2: living the same life you were living at that age, what would you say to her? I would tell you that I promise you there's options. Mm-hmm. There are options. You don't have to do the things that you feel that you have to do. I've been there. Like, I felt like I didn't have a choice it was like, man, I can either stay on the streets, I can get locked up, or I can go back home and be forced to go back to school in this same situation. And it's like sometimes, like if you reach out and just get the help, you'll find that that's not the worst option after all. Mm-hmm. The life that you're living, like when you're on the streets, man, you have no idea how close to death you come every single day. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're my age, you'll look back on it and think, "Ooh, honey, I can't believe I was doing all those things," <laughs> but really understand the risks that are involved. I know like it's hard like to think of that in the moment, especially like when you're just getting caught up, you kind of just feel like you're invincible. I'm here to tell you you're not. I'm looking at stories every single day of young people who think they're invincible and they're not. Mm. You're not, but I'm here to tell you that there are people who will fight for you. There are people who will hear you and you know the things that you feel that you need that are not being met. And the school and the systems that you're trying to leave, like, you can get help for that. There are options. There are people who will help you for that. I know in slavery, I know you guys are really great at that. But you have people who really go to bat for you and try to help you to be your best self and get the tools that you need. So please definitely reach out.
3: Mm.
2: I know, like, nobody wants to reach out because you always feel like, you know, that the system is just going to throw you in a prison cell. Mm. Like, they're at the detention center. But things have changed. There are options for you. And just reach out. If you need to, send me an email through my website. Like, if I can get you hooked up with some resources, I most definitely would. That's
1: great. So I work with our minors here. Mm -hmm. And I asked a few of them if they had any questions for you. And, of course, they wanted to come and meet you. That didn't work out for today. But I said I would read a few of your questions. Names are changed. But this one, I let her pick her own pseudonym. She said her name is going to be Melma. Melma. (laughs) I know, Melma. And she's 15 years old. She wanted to know, what do you do when you run into an obstacle or a temptation that has tripped you up in the past?
2: That's a great question. You know, I pride myself on being someone that I will learn from my mistakes. I wish when I was younger, I would have listened to the older people in my life when they told me, don't make the mistakes yourself, learn from somebody else's mistakes. I wish I would have done that, but I definitely learned from my mistakes and- as far as obstacles, man, like, it's not going to stop me. A lot of times I'll look back at what I've gone through. Sometimes i just remind myself, like, man, like, look what God brought you through. This is nothing to you. You can do this. If it's a question of if I'm ever in a situation I don't know what to do, it's like, well, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to hmm. figure it out. That's just who I am. Like, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm just going to figure out how this is done. I'm just going to figure it out. You know, kids are like that. Yeah. If you wanted to find something on social media, like, y- you'd figure it out. So when it comes to like you figuring out options, you getting the help you need, like learn to be your own advocate. You know, that's what I had to do. Learn to be your own advocate and figure out how to get what it is that you need. Learn how to look up different groups out in the community, different people out in the community who could help you get that and learn how to go after it. You know, my thing is the worst anybody that can do is so you know. That's the worst you can do to me.
1: I say that too. It (laughs) never hurts to ask. I have another question from Melma. How do you manage to block out negativity or
2: people dragging you down? I had to learn that there is always going to be somebody (laughs) who has something negative to say about you. You know, they speak about Jesus, so why wouldn't they speak about you? And he was the greatest thing to ever walk this planet. So you know they're going to say something negative about you. You have to make the decision, like, are you going to take ownership of that? Are you going to believe that? Because you don't have to. And I said, you know what? I'm not gonna believe this. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take that negativity in because you know I want better for myself. So if you feel this way and this is your negative things you can keep that to yourself like this circle right here that's around me like I'm just not gonna let it in like this is my bubble. like I'm not gonna let in my bubble what I don't want to let in my bubble. Um, you have that power. Yeah. You may not always know it, but you have that power. you have the power to dictate what it is that's gonna affect you.
1: Absolutely. I have a couple more questions from some of the other youth that I spoke with. This one is from a 13-year-old. We can call her Julie. Julie. She's talked about with me how the street and running away, that that lifestyle... She feels addicted to that adrenaline rush. Do you remember relating to this as a teen? We kind of touched on this already. And if so, what suggestions do you have for a healthy fulfillment of those like adrenaline cravings?
2: I mean, go run track or something. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Like, like
2: there's there's so many things you can get that. You know, my husband, he actually he does jujitsu and like he Mm -hmm. gets that same thing. Like, that's why I always talk about we need to be hooking kids up with these resources because they want that they need that they need something that they feel like you know this is their outlet this is something that they can really direct that energy into whether it's dance whether it's art like there are things that you can do do you you do jujitsu too oh honey i tried but (laughs) (laughs) it's not my thing
0: (laughs) it's a whole lot of sweat in one spot, I imagine.
2: It's the technical parts okay. for me though. Because <laughs> okay. he was like, nope, you don't want to turn that way. You want to do this. And, and then I'm going to go here and put you in my guard. And I'm like, I give up. <laughs> I give up.
3: Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> I forgot I'm all that done. that
2: quick.
0: Uh huh. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah.
1: No. I agree with you. And one of the things that we do. And we advocate for and we pay for is for them to get involved in classes like that, martial arts Mm -hmm. and um, or gym membership and just to keep, physical is such a good stress release Mm -hmm. or to take a class on something that they're passionate in, you know, just to do something positive with that energy. Mm -hmm. I have another question for you. Many trafficked youth we meet are afraid that no one will believe them or that their voice won't be heard. Did you feel this way? And what advice can you give to somebody that's afraid that their voice won't be
3: heard?
2: I absolutely felt that way. And I was not believed by many people, but I had to come to a place where it's like, man. I know what happened. When Mm. I was sitting there in that courtroom, it's like, man, these people weren't there. I know what happened. And even when it comes to, like, the feelings that you have, like, after going through stuff with trauma and stuff, nobody can tell you how to process that. Nobody can tell you how you should feel. Like, you didn't feel this. You didn't experience this. This is mine. Mm. And, like, this is part of my truth. And you have to learn to stand on your truth. So, like, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't believe you. There's always going to be somebody that doesn't like you. You have to learn to love yourself and be true to yourself and stand on that. Hmm. So, like, you speak your truth because it's yours and because you have a right to. Don't wait for anybody to give you permission. Don't wait for anybody to give you the floor. You speak on it. If that's what's in your heart, if that's what you feel led to do, you speak on it because it's yours. Hmm.
1: It's a word. I love it. Mm -hmm. Okay, last one. What keeps you going despite the trauma
2: and painful experiences that you've had? For me, it's I've seen what God has done with it. Mm. And I know that there's nothing that I can go through that he can't make beautiful, mm. that he can't create meaning out of. I know that. Like, he's already told us we're going to go through stuff. We've we've all seen that, that we're going to go through things. But there's that promise there that he can turn things around for you. Mm. And I've seen it happen. And so it's like, man, sometimes I'm in a situation and it's like, I can't see how this is going to end up. I can't see the other side of this. I can't even see how it could possibly end up well. But it's like, man, God, I'm just going to give it to you. And time goes by, and guess what? He fixed that in a way that I didn't even expect. Yeah. Like, I know, like, when I was younger and in school, like, I always felt everything was the end of the world. Oh, Melanie doesn't like me anymore. She's mad at me. Like, (laughs) you know, it's the end of the world. That was my best friend. What am I going to do now? And it's like, man, I promise you there's always tomorrow.
3: Mm. You
2: just got to keep pushing. And after so many years learning that that was in me, like, just to keep pushing and keep having that faith. And so that's what I lean on. When stuff gets difficult, I just think back, man, he's brought me from a long way. He's not going to leave me now. Yeah. You said that there
1: was a time when you were in prison that you were angry at God and you said you didn't believe in him anymore. Mm -hmm. You just didn't have faith at that point. And a lot of the kids that I work with feel exactly the same way. Mm -hmm. They say they don't believe in God or they're angry at him. They have no faith. They really have no hope either. What would you tell somebody struggling with that?
2: I tell you, number one, I can tell you from my personal experience, he's definitely real. When I was saying I didn't believe in him, I was really just mad because I felt like things didn't go my way. But God is not your genie in a bottle. That's not how that works. Hmm. But you know, he is your father. He is your protector. Like he has provided, you know, a will. If you submit to it, that's your choice. You have that choice. And I had to look back on a lot of the things that I went through, where I was blaming him, but really, man, like those were choices that I made. He had a life for me, but I chose not to choose that. I chose to make my own decisions, and I had to suffer the consequences from that. Mm. And so that doesn't speak to, you know, whether he's merciful or not. He's merciful because even after I've I've done what I've done, even after I denied him, he still loved me. Mm. He set me free from prison. I could have been sitting in there. Yeah. But he still saw me as worthy. He still loves me. And it's a journey that you're going to have to face, you know, and that you're going to have to go through with him. But have a conversation with him.
3: Mm.
2: That's what I had to do. Tell him. Like, I feel like... You don't exist because. Like, get Mm. it out.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you, Mm Centoya. It's wonderful. You can learn more about the Glitter Project and the Yes Council and donate funds so that youth consultants can be properly paid for their advocacy work at jfamfoundation.org. And you may have heard Santoya mention In Slavery Tennessee's What is 13 initiative and how seeing it while incarcerated actually helped her better understand her own history. You can check out this very campaign on the In Slavery Tennessee Someone Like Me podcast page at inslaverytn.org podcast. In Slavery Tennessee thanks the Jones Legacy Group for their continued support of Someone Like Me. Our production staff is Gregory Byerline. Stacey Elliott, and Marissa Brunel. Claire Bidigary curtis is our engineer, and original music is by Zach and Maggie White. I'm Leslie Eiler-Thompson. Thank you for listening.